So tonight I'm going to continue the theme of last night. I'm going to call this um, Once Long Ago Part Two. <laughs> Awakening. Awakening. Because we left the poor species in rather a, a dilemma. We left them very divided, didn't we? Left them in a fraction. And uh, no one deserves that. Although that's the state of the affairs for most of us. No, nobody deserves that. So this individual, us, you and I, uh, have enormous potential to be what we have always been. But in the course of our time, long time, and that long time has been embedded in our genetic history. So we're talking about a snowball going down the hill. <laughs> this is sizable. This is a sizable. This is a mountaintop. And, and yet uh, something in us has not altered since time immemorial. Because it hasn't been involved in the evolution. It has self has not moved from one thing to being another. It's has stayed as itself, holding all things that have changed. That's very important to understand. Because when we start getting involved with ourselves in meditation and we start moving by thinking about something or by trying to effort it or, or um, push it in a certain way, then we are just evolving ourselves. We're essentially doing what is called self-improvement. And self-improvement, there's nothing wrong with that. People often say, well, what's wrong with There's nothing wrong with it. It's just isn't freeing. It will take the edge off your personality. I probably should have done some of that long ago. <laughs> but, but I didn't. <laughs> So you're left with the <laughs> anyway the, <laughs> the the point is that there's nothing it, it's it's very um, endearing and much of Buddhism has to do with uh, a, a, a character development. There is a lot of Buddhism that has to do with character development in terms of developing a character that is safe, that is friendly that is uh, warm-hearted, that is engaging, uh, because that is a, that is a, the, the character that draws people that, from which the Dharma can be expressed and understood, in which somebody can feel safe in somebody else's presence, you can feel uh, that um, sense of non-harm with other people. It's a tremendous gift, isn't it? Tremendously rich gift to offer someone uh, the safety of your own presence. Tremendous. And there are many very, very fine teachers who have done both. Character development and you just you feel like, you know, it's just completely safe. All teachers should be safe, but their character may not be an obvious alignment with what you feel you need to be safe. But all Teachers should be basically kind. All Dharma students should be basically kind. In fact, one of the first 
changes that comes to one is the understanding that they no longer want to hurt anymore. That's the first major character development that happens to everyone on the path. It's, you know, I just don't want to hurt anyone anymore. I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend my life doing that. So the numerator certainly has a part to play in all of this. It, it modifies and uh, evolves in such a way that brings um, a receptive warmth so that other people can approach. But that's not freedom. And so we just have to acknowledge that that's important on the level of interaction, but inside that itself is not free. So now if we just go down below the fraction line once more, we dive down there, how is it that the uh, denominator makes itself even known to the numerator? I mean, we could go a long time and never know there's anything still about anything, right? Well, have you ever heard the call of the wild? And what I mean by that is, have you ever heard a wolf call or perhaps a whale call? And it's so compelling, isn't it? It's like it something in us rises up, doesn't it? That urge, see, it's not a verbal urge. It's a, it's a compelling, it's almost like gravity. It's like you can't not move in that direction. And that magnetism, so to speak, is an inherent part of the denominator. And as it comes up, it gets a little short-circuited because as it crosses the dividing line, it gets translated into words. Because the dividing line, that's what happens, is that the dividing line is words about things. So as, the, as this compelling quality of connectedness, really, isn't it? When you hear a, a wolf call, it's like something inside of us, ancient, stops, freezes. And as that moves into words, it turns into I want, I need, I must have. And arising with that comes a sense of being incomplete. Because from that call of the wild, if it's not oriented in the right direction, feels like you're a yearning towards something. And because... That fraction line has um, separated ourselves into words of this and that. It comes out as, oh, I need this. I want that. And it, we, co- we go into an external relationship with the world and trying to find or seek that which is satisfying. But it's the urge. It's co- May I say there's... My sense is, I have no... Um, I don't know this for a fact, but my sense is that all desires are a manifestation of that primal urge of connection. And they just take different shapes. But we spend a long time chasing after the different shapes in life 
trying to pull what we need to be complete into ourselves. And so we just we're constantly looking out, and and in a, when we do that, that hunger for externalized reinforcement or completion in oneself temporarily satisfies. When you crave for something and then you get it, you're temporarily satisfied. And that temporary satisfaction is as close as the human being, psyche, the individual me, can get to contentment. And so we think, wow, that was good. Let me just keep pulling stuff in. And so we become creatures of of um, accumulation. Meanwhile, the urge continues its call of the wild. Until finally, we see that whatever it is that we're pulling into ourselves really isn't satisfactory. It's not complete. It's not... It's like, is this it? And there comes a time when we bottom out on desiring, where it just isn't fulfilling to chase after our life by trying to gather things in. And many of us here have reached a depth of that understanding, but most of us have not ended completely that, have we? Now, what does it look like when we work in a cooperative way with this sound of the wild, this call of the wild. It looks like listening. It looks like we're moving toward, down, moving into it, rather than using it to find something to fulfill. It looks like we are moving towards it, that we are embracing the sound itself, that we are moving down into ourselves. We are willing to be quiet and cross the line. Cross the line. And that that um, gravity force sets us in motion. And it sets us in motion through intention. And the intention must be in line with the denominator because if we make an intention in line with the numerator, it'll set our energy in motion so it'll be fractured. And many people make a mistake on that, a spiritual mistake. So the the way this compelling need in ourselves forms itself into an intention for the individual (coughs) is by through words that have that are as close uh, that are words that point to um, interconnectedness words that connect words of love words of somehow words that bring things closer together so when we line our desire our intention up with this deep calling and yearning, we sense that fulfillment comes not in separating or distancing ourselves further, which has been the force and magnetism of the numerator, but rather to come together, to to, to, to get closer, 
to start connecting, reconnecting. And so our practice then becomes a way to do that. Becomes a, a way to connect. So then we start doing just that. And we start connecting with all of the things that have in the past disconnected us. Sent us in opposite directions to the object because we were loathing of the object. So in kind of what I call reverse cues, mind states like anger, like fear, like disgust, like irritation, annoyance, impatience, Instead of taking us in the opposite direction towards further isolation, they compel us to connect with them. So now I'm, okay, let me connect with my fear. Let me connect with this. Once we connect with it, we're no longer compelled to act the state of mind out in an individuated, isolated position. Once we connect with the state of mind, connecting with the state of mind is its own resolve. We don't have to do anything with the state of mind once we've connected with it. So we no longer have to act on our life in terms of finding satisfaction within our separation. Okay. Now, what does this have to do with awakening? <laughs> awakening. First, we have to have that lined up. If that isn't in line with us, if we are absolutely certain of the direction our spirituality needs to take. And if we don't keep asserting an intention, an energetic force towards getting, using my psychic energy to eliminate distance rather than to create distance, to hold, to allow, to all of the words we use in the meditation practice, accept, allow, be with all of it. Have the intention of holding things, connecting with things, being present with things. Now, there are four areas of awakening that have to go through this transformation. And each area has separate intelligences, intelligence I, I don't know, <laughs> have separate intelligence from the others. So you can't resolve one. They, are, are, they are, of course, affect each other. But you can't resolve one and expect all of them to be resolved. And there are many partially awake people because they haven't awakened their entire organism. And what does awakening mean? It means reconnecting. It means coming back together with, putting no boundaries between, eliminating all resistance to. That's what it means. It means eliminating the fraction line. Okay, so the first area is the mind. I mean, the mind seems to be indicating to us to further subdivide, to separate, to Pull back to, if you don't like something, leave. If you do, hold on. The messages of the mind have to be seen and perspective to the direction we are now taking, which is connection. 
And it is very, very awkward to realize that your whole life has been turned around. And all of us here in the room have come to that realization. That you can't keep doing things the way you're doing. That there's no peace and satisfaction and further subdividing. And that this whole thing must be turned around. And so we start working in a cooperative direction with this deep yearning of the denominator. And we start eliminating the fraction lines created in the mind by no longer running at the first flinch, the first reflex of difficulty. And we've talked about that in earlier talks. Okay, that's one aspect of the mind that must be understood. The strategies by which you and the generations after generations before you have proffered the world. Okay? The other one, and perhaps the more subtle aspect of this, is we have to see through thought itself. We have to understand that as long as we look through thought in the world, we will see what thought tells us it, the word says. And you can see that there are just endless thoughts, screens that keep flying by. And you can also see what happens when you identify with those thoughts. When the awareness goes into those thoughts, the world takes on the shape of that thought. And then you pull out and say, God, where have I been? And you begin to realize that the thought holds us in in the time and place of its thinking. And that once we have given our energy, invested our energy into the thought, it will take us wherever the thought takes us. There's no escaping. Until something wakes us up and then we say, well, wow, that's amazing, my goodness. Okay, so let's clear out what wakes us up. Do you wake yourself up? No, you do not wake yourself up. You are on the breath and then you're off the breath. You didn't ask to leave the breath, but you're off the breath anyway. Did you ask to leave the breath? No. You just are not on the breath anymore. It wasn't your will, or maybe it is, but it shouldn't be. You're <laughs> off. And then you're in thought. And now all of a sudden you're not in thought. Did you wake yourself up from being in thought and now are awake? No, you did not. You recognize that event after it happened, but you are not responsible for having extracted yourself from thinking. What did it? The intention. The energetic pull, the magnetism, the alignment that we have with that intention, the energetic alignment, the heart's convincing of the truth of things and the sincerity towards that truth starts waking us up. Not our will. Our will is the strategy of the numerator. The will is not going to wake you up. The will is going to get you more deeply embedded in the thought that it is your empowerment to wake up and for you to do everything you can to wake up, which will create more havoc and more isolation for yourself. So this is mysterious, is what I'm saying. This is something beyond you. This is not our, of our doing. This is not of our doing. If it was of our doing, the hardest worker would win. It is not of our doing. It's not of our cleverness. 
We can't outsmart it. It's a level playing field for the scholar and the servant. Level playing field. In fact, uh, in the literature, it's often the poor, um, holy, uh, shoed servant, cook, that <laughs> becomes the patriarch of the... I love that. Because you don't win with money, you don't win with, win with intelligence, you don't win this game with power, you don't win it with cleverness, you don't win it with, you add, whatever. You win it with sincerity, with alignment. And it's coming at that deep willingness to see yourself as a complete jerk. <laughs> Inevitably, we do. (laughs) Inevitably, we do. And as that, as we begin to see the effects of thought upon us, and we look at thought, and we begin to see the effect that a word, when we take on a word, the world is covered with that word and all of its reflection. One word creates all objects. And when we pull back from that word, everything comes together in quietude. And when we look through and we pull back and we look through and we pull back, suddenly we uh, begin to understand that the word is a perspective on the truth. It is not the truth. And at that point, we simply do not invest in thinking anymore. And that is the awakening of the mind. And as we disinvest from thinking, it's not, you see, it's not that we make a decision. There's no me. The I, when we are invested in a word, the I manifests right there with it. When we divest from the word, there is a sense of community, a a communion of interconnectedness. We invest in a word, we come back into shape. And so this back and forth we begin to see is the very creative force in which I am born. The sense of I is born. And we sense uh, increasingly that it's not worth being born in that world. The world of subjects and objects, of this and that, of you and me, just isn't worth it. It isn't worth, the live, it isn't worth living in it. And so the energy, not us, the energy no longer invests in it in the same way. And so thought's quiet because it's not being invested in. Many thoughts quiet. You can't quiet it. Your intention quiets it. Okay, so now the mind, let us say, is awake. Is that the end? No, that's not the end. There is the heart. The accumulated emotional body uh, that I won't call the heart because I call the heart something else. Let's just call it our emotional intelligence. Our emotional intelligence, just because the mind's awake and knows oneness, we try to convince the heart that it knows oneness. It doesn't know oneness at all. It knows emotional reactivity because it's never been brought to the light of day. That 
oneness has stayed up here and has shown very nicely for in relationship to mental experience, but not to the emotional experience, not to the encrusted and calcified tissue of our early years, mostly, where we have made assumptions about ourselves that most of us refused to retranslate into the present moment, to look at again. And these emotional uh, bodies have the intelligence in which the pain of the assumption was induced. So if you were two years old and your mom never paid any attention to you, that two-year-old is still stuck in us. The emotionality of that two-year-old is is still there. And even though up here you can say, I know, I know all about my history. I know about how my mother taught me. I know all about that. Still, when that thing kicks up, you're not this wondrous, awakened, interconnect. You're like, you're the two-year-old crying forth from that emotional reactivity. Because the emotion has not been given the same encouragement, has not been given the same um, gentleness, the same perseverance as the mind. The mind's much easier in that sense because it doesn't have our necessary emotional history. It's a very kind of abstract thing to see. Okay, you have a thought, and me, and yes, and that's all very nice, and yet we can stay very personally consumed with our own assumptions in our emotional world. And people's, often their awakening comes from their mind, but their heart is completely in disarray. And you see them in life and they're kicking up all kinds of dust and reacting and throwing things and yet they give these beautiful Dharma talks from such clarity. Because they're at odds. And so the sincere practitioner realizes that they have to mature their emotional body. And they do the very hard work and often the excruciating work because this may be a far harder ordeal than the awakening of the mind to go in there and just and to really question. But the awakening of the mind helps at this point because at that you you can see the the limitation of thought and this thing, this emotional experience, this emotional reactivity is full of very dense feelings, experiences, memories, and thoughts. And because we've worked with emotions in many different areas, but never at the level of these assumptions, we have some sense of safety with our emotions. We don't, we aren't so afraid of them. And so we're willing to do that. And so we have to go into our emotional world. Almost every one of us have to clean it up. We have to expose it to the light of day. We have to see what's there and what's reacting and what's going on and see whether it's true that I'm as lousy as I believe myself to be. To see if it's true. And where it's proved not to be true is not digging up your past and looking at all of the different incidences along the way, but now it's never true. You can cut to the chase let that emotional reactivity express itself, manifest here and now, and in the now. Holding now. Holding the denominator. Letting the numerator come into the denominator of space. 
It's irreversibly seen. You are totally understand that this is something that has come from the past that you have just conditioned yourself to believe and it holds no reference at all to this moment in time. It comes in and without further investment in it, it drops dead. It keeps trying to come through and because I don't, we don't add any story to it, we don't add any more con- yes, I really was an idiot for doing that and how could I have done that? Oh God, I did it again and now. All of that in now ends. And so th- the background of our emotional uh, immaturity comes into the light of our awared maturity and begins to gr- it begins to end. It begins to grow up from the two-year-old to the age we are now. It begins to mature. And when it's matured, it's just an emotion. It doesn't carry the sting of a two-year-old any longer. That's an emotion. And it doesn't move. And when, since it doesn't move, it's connected with it. And since it's connected, it is now awakened. It is not distinguished as something separate from. And are we finished? No. (laughs) So the next thing we have to awaken is our body. And this is the next step. Difficult? Yes. To some, it's even more difficult than the emotional maturation. Why? Because the body needs to act. It needs to, in movement, it gets healed. So we actually have to put what we have learned in our maturation of mind and heart into action. Wise action. We have to actually move in a different course in a different way than our corresponding tendencies and conditionings would lead us to believe would move us we have to act in the world no longer from our reactivity our our um, models our habitual models and is that awkward well you don't know what You know, it's fine. Awakened mind, nobody knows you. I mean, you don't, you're like, you can be stretched out universally, infinitely, and hi, Rodney, hello. Nobody, oh, they're fine. (laughs) Emotional maturity, you're not kicking around quite as much. People notice that. You seem quieter, seem calmer. Yeah, thank you. So that's, that's pretty nice too. But now, in action, you're as awkward as a newborn. Because you're moving and you don't know what it is that's compelling the movement anymore because it's not your habits. And the body has to reawaken out of its slumber, deep, millions of year old slumber, genetic slumber. And the old stuff keeps moving out. The old, you know... the. 
But it makes it much easier. We've cleaned up a lot of our emotional stuff. But a lot of our emotional stuff has to be brought through the body in order for it to be completed. It can't... See, that all these things are tied together. I'm speaking about them in separate awakenings, but really, they're all tied together. Because when we are emotionally tuned and accepting of our reactions, we now have to act differently. If we start acting the same, then those old patterns are just going to get reinforced over and over again through our action. We have to stand different. We have to hold ourselves different. Not Because the body has bent itself according to the assumptions and according to the attitudes that have been um, compressing it into whatever it's believed it was. And many people, many meditators, get stuck at this point. right? Especially when their minds aren't completely awake, their hearts aren't completely opened, and, and their bodies are still sort of halfway between these two. Yet the insights come that this needs to be done, such and such... You know, is not a true statement of me. And as soon as we walk out of the retreat, we have this convincing quality and we can walk with each other with our shoulders squared and holding our confidence. And that's because we're not speaking. (laughs) And it's all wonderful and quiet. And then the bell rings to end the retreat and the first exchange and you're going, oh my God, you know. All of it comes back in and we've, the shroud comes back over and we find ourselves playing the same games again and again and again. And that's how most people's retreats go and it's a very slow journey, especially through this, through the body, through the body's action. But because of determination, only because of determined action, because of intention, We're willing to do it. And I can't tell you the number of days, times in a day, that doubt still come in. It tries. It can't. It's no longer... It's infrequently convincing. It tries to form like... You can just see it go like this. But it just... It's so... It so goes... Like that. That's where it goes. That's what what it looks like to my mind. It's like that. It's not completely formed. Especially when I'll say something and then I'll get two or three comments from you that why did you say that? It goes shoot. And (laughs) (laughs) the strength, because my intentions are not to hurt. I just have to fall back on my intentions. I'm not there to hurt you. If my intentions were any different than that, if they were in some way mean-spirited, then I would be felt like I would have been caught. And when you feel caught from that paranoia, you're back in defending yourself, and then you're caught in the old traps. But if you, if your life is relatively integritous, doesn't have to be, you know, like you never say anything untrue and all that. It's just that you're you've devoted your life towards that point, then it doesn't really, it doesn't coalesce much. And that's part of wise action as well, is just living integritously, living with integrity. That's all. That's why it's such an important statement in Buddhism. 
So those are three, but I said there were four <laughs> awakenings, didn't I? My God, we've gone through the mind, we've gone through the heart, we've gone through the body. What is left? Well, this perhaps is the hardest. And that's the existential, the existential sense of the terror of, shall I say, emptiness or being nobody or being without a self. And we can have moments of it in which it feels very good, but when the thought comes that that's where we're going, is it can be this, this gut-wrenching terror that forms us right back. And you go, Jesus, I'm never going to be able to get it. I can't, like I don't even have a chance on this one. It's so, you know, it's so uh, shocking to the system that you, it's the ego's, as I mentioned, the last card that it plays. And it's a, a, a very formative power. And it gets us right back and we, and we think, oh Jesus, this is really, I got a real problem now, you see. And so it knocks us into the numerator. We're all settling down, we feel, and then all of a sudden we feel ourselves sort of vacuous, you know, that's right. And then all of a sudden, Welcome! like that, and boy, am I numerized. it's like whoa man whoa and it's almost a give up because there doesn't seem to be any way around that thing every time you get close this thing shocks you back into it right well at some point it doesn't happen anymore and I don't know how that happens somehow I think just the depth of wisdom the continued perseverance of spirit and the acquired taste of the denominator just is not going to... I don't care what. And so that's the last straw. You just say, I don't give it. When you throw it down and say, as I say often, come what may, and you mean it, it didn't, doesn't arise. It needed the same force of certainty as the power it has for creativity. You see? And so I think what happens, I'm just talking now, is that the energy that went into the creative force now becomes the energy of absolute, come what may, confidence, openness. And so there's no more energy for it to form because it's now all consumed within bring it on. You see? I think that's what happens. I'm just kind of thinking this as I'm speaking. And now, what about the line? You see, is the line a problem anymore? Or does it not form anymore? Are you off in some kind of uh, infinite space all the time and can't even know your name? It's like, no, of course not. Hi, how are you? Good. Come on in. Sit down. Let's talk. How you been? Good. How are you? Hi. Nothing's disturbed in that conversation. 
Nothing. If there's something functional to do, you do it. And you need to know this and that. You need to know what a clock is. You need to know the functional objects of the world. You need to navigate through all of those. You need to... And then there's no need. So coming into the numerator is no problem when you have it, when you are informed by the denominator. Right? When you don't know the denominator, then life is hell. Once you start knowing the denominator in relationship to the numerator, it gets better and better. To the point when the fraction line doesn't mean anything because it never fools you. You're never convinced of your own personhood anymore. Once seen completely, it's done. And you put to rest ancient history. You have stepped out of karma, so to speak. And does it look different? Not necessarily. Still looks like Jim and Jack and Joe and Tom. In fact, the bus drivers. Are, there are many more awakened people than you might think. Many more. They just don't wear a badge. And it comes, it starts from the recognition of the call of the wild, for lack of a better term. For the gravitational pull that has always been there, of that which has never evolved and never changed. And so when we take a seat, we, when we, when, when union is once again complete, because we're no longer pulling out of it, we've released ourselves into it then nothing has ever happened. You can as easily say that nothing has ever happened at any time, anywhere. As you can to say that there has been all of this commotion for 13 and a half billion years since the Big Bang. Both of those statements are absolutely true in exactly the same moment. Because from the denominator, nothing has happened. Nor could anything possibly happen. But from up here, we know the story. And to rest between the conditioned and the unconditioned. Manifesting, as Christ said, in the world, but not of the world. 
And so the recognition of the problem begins the whole transformation and re-emergence into the solution. And the honesty of intention leads it. And the more we see honestly, the more the pull of that intention drives the awakening. And the less we're willing to see because we don't want to admit the intention becomes weakened. And then we want to be enlightened, but there's no alignment. And we beat our breasts and we'll go on pilgrimages and journeys and bow 10,000 times and do prostrations and chant to God and nothing will have changed. Because the outward show does nothing unless there's alignment throughout the system. And what does alignment look like? It's willing to look and say, yep, I got this. This is there. I do this. I say this to myself. I've done this. I I told the lie. Who told the lie? I told the lie. You told the lie? Yes, I told the lie. but mostly to oneself. It's not an exercise in public witnessing your transgressions. It's, it's the knowing. It's, it's, in, it's the knowing in oneself. Yeah, I did it. I did it. It's not beyond any of our ability. You don't have to be healthy, and you don't have to be on retreat. But you do have to be well intended. May we all be well intended. Can we sit? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.